Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Jordan Rothline from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. There are audio files, and then there's Tony Andrews. He's been building PAs since speaker arrays capable of powering large-scale music events became a necessity. And today, the sound systems made by his company Function One are the preferred kit of the world's best clubs. Easy on the eyes and surprisingly easy on the ears, even at super high levels. Function One systems are considerably more iconic than you might expect something so technical to be. A testament to Andrew's uncompromising vision for how to achieve great sound, be it on a pint-sized dance floor, a cavernous techno club, or at a major music festival. In this episode of Couch Wisdom, recorded at the 2011 Red Bull Music Academy in Madrid, Andrews discussed the curse of line arrays, how to prevent what he calls the chainsaw effect, and why listening to music through our phones and other portable devices has ruined our ears. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Please welcome Mr. Tony Andrews. So before we end up at function one and sound quality and signal chains and distortion and all these things, how does one get into the business of building a loudspeaker? If you're asking when I, when I, when I started, um, it started with an interest in hi-fi and um, didn't have much money when I was 16, 17, so I... I bought some speakers and built my own boxes and um, just began to investigate stereo, if you, if you like. The first thing that I remember really strongly was uh, Jimi Hendrix, Electric Ladyland. Had some of the most amazing uh, stereo panning. That's, uh, I don't quite understand why we don't do more of it today, but anyway, it was very exciting to us. And... Um, After I'd learned about hi-fi, I, I mean, you know, bands touring and uh, it was relatively new then. And the idea occurred to me that what we need is the sound for a band to be like, like hi-fi quality. So that's the kind of mission that I decided I was going to get into, to try to um, get hi-fi quality at really loud levels. This is back in 1970. 71 and the first um, first touring band I worked with when I made my own system was uh, actually the Pink Fairies and they were supported by a band called Hawkwind who you probably will have heard of um, it's one of those instances where the really good band broke up and uh, the support band became if you like a stronger thing Hawkwind for those who might not know was the band a certain Lemmy started in right And he went on to form a group called Motorhead, which ended up to be the loudest band on earth. Well, Arguably. that's what they'd like to think. But as I'm sure we're all know, we all know, it's not about level, it's about quality. Yeah, we're going to hear about that. And were you making music yourself or were you just interested in the scientific aspects of it? Oh, when I was about 16, I had a bass guitar. And uh, to be perfectly honest, I didn't have the... Uh, I didn't have the front to get up on stage and do that. I was too nervous, believe it or not. 
but I always found myself fixing the things that got broken and uh, so it kind of developed that way so and you're you're also self-taught right and that yeah I mean I had a background in um, physics and you know I did reasonably well academically I uh, got a place at university which lasted about three weeks um, because I just couldn't stand the idea of sitting there taking notes and then having to remember them four months later because I'd been doing that for years and uh, I just couldn't take it anymore and anyway there was a psychedelic explosion at the time and everybody um, you know where it was at was um, was the music so that's what attracted another thing that attracted me to it and and do you remember that first loudspeaker you built did you model it after a, a certain loudspeaker you couldn't afford or was it just you played it by ear no completely played it by ear um i didn't understand all sorts of things at the time but you know you try things out just like you're doing music you try them out you listen to them you see you see how it makes you feel and i guess this is how we learned about bass we we had one of the one of the original hi-fi speakers and we were playing around in uh, in a room and my brother put it in a corner and of course all the mids and highs disappeared but there was this sudden big improvement in the bass. So we went out into the garage and we built the corner of a room and I thought, well, the corner of the room isn't a good shape. Let's turn it round, let's reverse it. And that's how the first bin evolved. So in a way you could say it's an accident, but when accidents happen, it's like good to observe what's occurred. And if it doesn't make sense, then find out why. And Or if there's something interesting, see if you can't pursue it further. And when did it occur to you to, yeah, before Function One there was another another brand you did, and when did it, it did it occur to you to actually make this your living? Not only go on tour with bands, but manufacture your own sound equipment for them. Well, in the 70s, we were a rental company, and in those days, most rental companies built their own equipment and. We worked with bands like Santana, Jackson Brown, Iron Maiden, later on Calling the Gang, people like that. So that, in the 70s, everybody was building their own equipment and uh, we, we just evolved our ideas. One of the things we were completely concerned about was the compression drivers that get used for mid-range and high frequencies to this day, in fact. They're only small metallic diaphragms. When you give them a lot of pressure, it just goes to rag. You know, it just rags out. It, um, it goes, or technically you'd say it goes non-linear. It's not faithfully reproducing. Um, it's adding up to maybe 40 or 50% of its own sound, which is distortion. So we started looking at cone drivers for mid-range. Mid uh, probably about 74 By 76, we'd had the first turbo, which is a way of organizing the waves from a cone driver, a bit like in the same principle that um, a phase plug in a compression driver. Do you guys know anything about the basics of um, uh, loudspeakers and the various types that get used? Uh, so, <laughs> so I'm, yeah. Okay, let's try another an, another angle then. When you go into a club and it feels like there's a chainsaw taking your ears off, that's a compression driver. 
going into its clipping. Not clipping like the meters going into the red, which everybody can do quite happily. It's clipping mechanically. It just can't hold its integrity. So this was an obvious weak point in, um, in, in getting loud sounds strongly. Why, why do you have them then in the first place when they have the effect of a chainsaw? Ah, because they're very good converters of electrical energy into acoustic output. In other words, their efficiency is high. And um, what could we say here? Like a direct radiator, so like a 12-inch speaker would have a really high efficiency one would have a, a measurement of say 100 or 101 dB for one watt, one meter. This is a this is a sensitivity figure. So sensitivity is about how much of your amplifier energy is being turned into acoustic output. So the typical home speaker is maybe about three or four percent um, efficient, which is really low. And the uh, fact, truth is, 100 acoustic watts in the air is enough to kill you. Just to give you an idea of how inefficient the majority of loudspeakers are. So the compression driver has an efficiency approaching maybe 30%. In other words, you get a lot of sound out of it. But the problem with it is you get the high efficiency, but you get masses of distortion. And distortion is something that bothers me greatly and I um, right from the beginning it seemed to be the, the wrong thing so so the thing was can we replace the compression driver with something that is as efficient but doesn't suffer from all the horrible sound they can make and so cone drivers uh, paper is an organic material it's much more natural it's closer to the speed of sound in air than say metal um, you've only got to think of a dustbin and the clangy sound it makes. So, and then you think of something like a guitar body, which is made out of wood, or a violin. These are, if you like, more natural human sounds. And the speed of sound in organic materials is, again, closer to, to what it is in air. So a metal diaphragm is, is actually a not a very nice thing. And all compression drivers have this. They used to be aluminium. These days, they're titanium because uh, it's longer lasting, stronger. So we started evolving, if you like, uh, cone driver mid-range, probably in the mid-70s. And uh, we've been continuing that evolution to the, to the very present day. We've understood more and more how to load a cone driver to get the maximum amount of energy with the minimum amount of distortion. We know we've reached a point now where the speakers are, even at high level, are clean enough that we, we start looking, and have done for a long time, further up the chain, up to the very beginning of the, uh, of the music-making process. So when you, when you talk about uh, that back in the day, the problem was to get the right loudspeakers, right? To manufacture them. And now you have them, more or less? More or less, yeah. And where's the problem now? <laughs> So the, so the problem these days is that it seems to have reversed and a lot of the, a lot of the problem has come with the, um, with the arrival of digital. And let me say right from the beginning that actually digital can be as good 
even better than analog. But there are more things that have to be considered and, and, and got correct with digital than there is with analog. Analog is in some ways a lot simpler and easier. You know, then we have the, then we have the World Wide Web and uh, in the beginning, the bandwidth was, uh, as we know, was very, very narrow, quite small, bitrate was, um, was low, storage space was incredibly expensive. So the, so the MP3 got in, invented more or less as a holding situation, as a stopgap until things could grow up. Problem with these sorts of things is that they become bad habits and um, reinforced by um, iTunes. Everybody says Steve Jobs great, but he didn't do anything for audio. I'm telling you, he, he didn't. Um, but like before we speak about the, the audio quality kind of thing, maybe you could explain, as they are not very familiar with the whole sound system thing, what's the main difference between an analog sound system and a digital sound system? Hmm. The main difference. Well, the main, the main difference in today's world and experience is that the, the, I'm afraid digital can sound very, can sound quite harsh. A lot of the depth and the texture of the sounds is missing because they don't, they don't take all the information. You can do some simple sums like, what is the dynamic range of human hearing? Well, it's going to be zero to the threshold of pain. And pain kicks in at about 135 to 140 dB. That is really, really loud. I mean, a nice, a nice full-on listening level is probably about 100 to 105. So if you like, there's 135 dB of dynamic range available to human hearing. So bit depth is um, how we measure digital dynamic range. So 8-bit depth is going to have a very quite narrow dynamic range. In other words, the loud bits are only going to be so loud and the quiet bits, the difference between the, the quiet and the loud bits is not going to be so much. So if you do the maths, it kind of comes out at about 24-bit depth is actually translates to about the same range as human hearing in terms of dynamics. So the bit depth is a dynamic range. And I guess you know, know this, but I'm going to repeat it anyway. The, the sample rate is the amount of slices taken through time. And considering the fact that um, the human auditory system can discern time differences down to 15 microseconds, not milliseconds, so it's um, 15 millionths of a second, has a meaning for the human auditory system. And the ear is not this funny shape for no reason. There, there, there's a purpose to, to all the, the little curves and, and the shape of it. And it's to do with um, vector location. I guess when we were on the plains of Africa or in the jungles, and certainly at night, the eyes were not going to help us if we were, if we were going to become prey of some predator. Or maybe it's food. But if you hear a sound, um, you don't have to see to know where it, where, it, where it is. And I guess when you're in the jungle, you're relying more on your auditory sense. So the audio system for humans is incredibly well developed. You instantly know where something's going. Even if you're blindfolded, when you walk into a room, you will know it. When you walk out of the room outside, you will know it. 
because the processing is always on. It never, ever stops. And that's, guess why, if you're in a bad acoustic environment like uh, uh, a pizza place with tiled floor, hard walls and ceiling, glass, um, somebody puts a fork down, everybody hears it. Everybody's shouting because they're trying to get their voice across to their friend above the general noise. If you're in a, a room such as this one, which is acoustically reasonably dead, it's a, it's a pleasant acoustic environment, it's not hard work to exist in it. And this is something that's always there, always with us. The outcome of being in a bad acoustic environment for a couple of hours is that you begin to feel irritable and you start to feel tired because the processor is just on all the time. And we're just not aware of it in, a, in a, such a conscious way, but we feel the results, which is tiredness. And um, architects don't ever think about the acoustic properties of their space that they're designing. They should, because the acoustic properties make for the, the mood and the feeling and the ambience of a place. And, um, you know, it's good to pay attention. For example, the, the, the nice little huts that you've got around the place here for, for doing music. They're great because the walls are all different angles, so you don't get any standing waves. But there would be quite an improvement if there were, say, some, some just cloth in the ceiling to absorb the high frequencies. Because high frequencies reflections spoil your perception of the stereo image. And when you're mixing, you want to be hearing just the speakers, assuming that they're reasonably truthful and not glamorizing or underplaying so that, you know, a, a good reference so that when you go out there, it's not miles away from whatever the average is. But I mean, if you go out there and play, there's all sorts of things you're going to encounter. So there has to be kind of a ground zero. And that's what a studio is for, to so be, a, be a reference. And that would you also recommend for the bedroom studios at home to have just a little bit cloth? I certainly would. I mean, it's not rocket science acoustics. You just want things that absorb so the sound doesn't come back. Because, you know, with the speed of hearing and everything, you pick up that reflection. It spoils your perception just from the loudspeakers. And in fact, you don't even want to hear the loudspeakers. You want to hear the result. So... When I'm listening to a system, I've got my test tracks. I put them on. I get in the middle of the speakers. How well does the sound stage? And I mean, this is this is the key thing as to why audio quality is so important, because it can be a transcendent spiritual experience. Because when when you become part of something to the extent that you can with audio and good music and a, and a good sound, your mind can open. I'm not saying it's it's going to follow exactly, but many people have this experience, which is why there are hi-fi nutcases in the world, I guess. And why do you think your loudspeakers are so popular with clubs or electronic music in, in general? Well, they're popular in clubs because mostly in clubs, people are not suffering from the politics of the of the live touring world. It used to be a pioneering thing. When we were in it in the 70s, it was a, it was a very different category of people. We see, we don't do a line array. What is a line array? Um, it's the strip of speakers you see each side of the stage when you go into a concert. And they're all of a certain kind. 
they're actually quite e easy to fly. But as a way of doing big audio, they're actually extremely flawed. Um, you're never going to get the precision that we're talking about. It's easy with one speaker to get a reasonably good result, especially if your room is okay. But if you've, if you've got lots of speakers, they really take some organizing to, if you like, sing off the same page. They've all got to be in time. They've got to be in sync. It's a bit like when you're rowing a boat, everybody has to row together at the same time. But why is the line array method then so popular with live music? Well, because we live in a world now which is dominated by um, a convenience rather than production values. So in clubs, they don't, they don't have all these, these ideas. I mean, the live world is incredibly political. When you've got glamour and um, celebrity, it's not so much the celebrities, but all the people around start going a bit crazy. And so you this kind of madness develops where actually I can honestly say that the sound at concerts today is not as good as it was 25 years ago when it was more analog and line arrays didn't exist. That's, that's my opinion about it. Um, clubs like our stuff because they're just listening to audio. They want, obviously, strong bass that's musical. When you play a bass line that's got various notes in it, it does all of them. It doesn't, doesn't do just one note. The mids are, um, if you like, clean and strong. Um, it's, it's the distortion levels. The, we can get loud sound really, really clean. And the high frequencies are very pure because the crossover point is, is high. What's a crossover point? Between the bass speaker and the mid-range, there'll be one crossover. And between the mid-range and the high frequency, there'll be another. So there's another thing about audio. We talked about how fast it is, uh, how important timing is, and how deep we can perceive the differences in time arrivals. But also, it's the breadth of um, the audio spectrum. It's 10 octaves wide. All the colors we see are in the are of the rainbow and the rainbow is one octave so light's electromagnetic waves and sound is waves of compression and rare refraction everything in the universe seems to be built on the on an octave so there's one octave of light so with one light bulb you can get all the all the light you need all the full spectrum which when you add it all together becomes white Uh, it's incredibly difficult to do that with 10 octaves, which is why sound systems are split into bass speakers, mid and high, and sometimes low mid and high mid and high. And my mind, if you go much beyond that, A, it's probably not necessary. And you're complicating it to a point where um, you could probably get more problems and good results. But four-way system is about, about the maximum. But the reason you have to do this is because a bass wave is easily as long as this room and a high frequency wave is about this long. So we're talking huge orders of magnitude difference. The difference between red light and violet light is not much. We just see this narrow spectrum. If we saw the whole of magnetic spectrum, electromagnetic spectrum, we probably wouldn't be able to walk anywhere without bumping into something. Um, it would be too much. So the windows of perception that we have as humans, well, they're what they are and they've evolved the way they are. But we have, we have 10 octaves in 
sound. So it's very, very broad. It's also 360 degrees, and your vision is is a actually your reading vision is a very narrow cone directly in front of the eyes. Peripheral vision probably goes out to about here, but with with audio, it's completely 360 the whole time. So, in a way, I may, may, maybe I've under, given a reason as to why speaker systems are often divided up into bass, mid, and treble. And a, and a crossover is the thing that takes the full range spectrum and divides it into bass, low, mid, high, mid, and treble. That's what a crossover does. And these days, because of digital, which is a really positive thing about digital, it enables us to also delay the time by some milliseconds, because to get great sound, all frequencies need to arrive at almost at the split microsecond together, um, because of this time insensitivity that we have. Yeah, everyone who ever played in a club without monitors can maybe feel you on that. Well, when it comes to trying to time the beat for the yeah, next record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. As soon as you're in, you wonder, what did I do wrong? It sounded right <laughs> just a second ago. You have that delay. Yeah, you, you do. And um, quite honestly, there is a great lack of good sound engineers in the world in general. Um, there, aren't so, there aren't so many. Um, okay, so assuming the sound system's okay, and there's an engineer who's got it nicely dialed in for the room. I mean, any room's got a nice working level. Too little and you don't get enough excitement. Too much and you start to crush people, especially if it's distorted. So the idea here is to try and keep the sound as clean as possible. I know that, um, you know, some kinds of distortion are actually part of the of the, the musical thing. You're, you're not talking about the Jimi Hendrix kind of distortion, right? No, because that was his that was his sound, and um, it was even harmonic distortion. You know, it's actually quite pleasant. Whereas the distortion you get from, say, not just a bad sound card, of which most of them are not uh, are not much good, it's also overloading it. So, um, Now, that kind of distortion has got a lot of square waves in it. They're not natural. The ear doesn't like them. I know we're living in a world where, you know, quite a lot of ugly things are considered good, but I can't come to terms with distortion as being um, a beneficial thing to the, to the average human. And, you know, it's in everything from MP3s to bad sound cards to bad original samples. So... For me, it's um, the most important thing is to have a good beginning, so it's a nicely recorded vocal, or it's a good sample, it's a good quality. When you're mixing it, your levels want to be just right. They don't want to be too quiet. They don't want to be too loud, because when it's clipping and in the red, that's what you get. You get that, that horrible, crunchy sound. If you do this half a dozen times, you've not got much left, and then you listen to it and you think, well... Because it's not just that you've got distortion, which is um, non-linearities, artifacts, things that never belonged in the in the original signal in the first place. It's the fact that the clean side of it is missing, the depth, the all the information that can make sound so such a beautiful experience. When the sound is good, it's like um, you want to open yourself to it. 
when it's bad, it, it drives you away. It's like something to avoid. So good samples, good beginnings, sensible gain structure all the way through, keeping the life in it. An 8-bit sample will not have all the information that a piano's got into it, all the harmonics. For instance, an MP3, even at 320 kilobytes per second, has only got 20% of the information of, of, a, of a CD quality. So if you translate CD quality, which is 16-bit, 44.1 kilohertz, into kilobytes per second, it comes out, I think, at about 1,410. So if you think a so-called high-quality MP3 is 320 kilobytes per second, that makes a CD five times more information. So obviously, some, lots of stuff is going to be missing. And I'm not an expert on digital, but I know that it's looking for significant bits. And there's a level which an MP3 will just reject any information that is below a certain level in the mix, which means that all your subtle harmonics are gone. They're not there anymore. And the effect on the sound is like if you're looking at a, a two-dimensional picture or really being in the place. And that, to me, is another reason why audio quality is so important. It's a multi-dimensional experience when it's really good. When it's bad, it's just, it might as well be somebody put paint on a wall. It's not the full thing. And I am concerned that generally in the world, the appreciation of this is going downhill. And it's a combination of um, bad use of digital, you know, such as MP3s, and actually line arrays at concert have lowered the expectation. iPods have got people to a point where they almost prefer the sound of an iPod to to uh, real real audio. And quite often when engineers get on a function one system when they're doing a live band, it actually frightens them because if you move an EQ, you, you get a response. It's kind of like taking a guy who's been driving, I don't know, a Ford Focus, you know, a pretty standard car and putting him in a Formula One car. They're actually quite hard to drive because they're so sensitive. You have to be careful you have to know what you're doing but if you do you can get the most amazing results live in fact good live in a in a decent room can be better than anything that's recorded because the number of stages between the original and the final result is 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 at a minimum so to expand on that particular point every time you take your your audio and you put it through a processor or you, you copy it from one file format to another. Unless the mathematics is perfect and the algorithms are wonderful, it's going to be degraded. And it's always been there that the minimum number of stages between the beginning and the end will always give you the best audio. It's very hard to hold on to all these subtle things that make, that make a Steinway piano a Steinway and a a cheap copy, a cheap copy. Most people could tell the difference, but they're both pianos. So, so a line array will give you sound, but it won't necessarily give you any more than a, a very two-dimensional result. And what else is important in a club then for you? In a club, well, the... the what would you be your ideal setup 
if you can uh, a completely influence. dead room with you know something at least as dead as this this room is here um, you're never going to be able to have anything but a hard floor but I mean well case in point this um, this this February space said to us look we've been using the system for seven or eight years we we want to raise we want to raise the game we want to do something new and different so I came up with a plan went out there and I said look I'm only going to do this if you treat the ceiling of this place because we're standing here talking and I can hear the the low mids in my voice coming back down to me and um, that's just me talking what's it going to be like when we put 10,000 watts on and and that's going to be the flavor of the room so I will do another step forward on the sound system if you do the ceiling well it turn, turns out that they thought this was okay. They would do it. They got a nice chap in from Barcelona, and um, he did a he did a really nice job. But there was an, an observation which um, I was curious about, which is why am I only getting the low mid back from the ceiling? Because this looks like a concrete ceiling, and I should get some high frequency back as well, and I'm not. So when we were actually hanging the stuff in the place. And I was up in the roof. I could see that they'd um, sprayed some of this, um, I don't know, you call it flock, or they'd sprayed some material on the roof. But it was only sufficiently absorbent to take away the high frequencies. But the mids were still there. So when I actually got up in the roof, which was sometime in May, that's when I realised why I was getting that reflection. So in your writing room or the place where you're doing stuff, when you walk in and you're talking, listen to what's coming back. If it's a good room and it's nice, the sound, the sound of your own voice is going to stay inside your head. If, it, if it's not so good, it will sound like it's all around you coming from every direction. And this is a straight what you've, you've already got all the equipment you need actually uh, about your person to evaluate an acoustic space you don't need a laptop or a load of um, equipment and microphones and graphs because most uh, real-time analyzers average over a, as far as the ear is concerned a very long period of time because the ear works in microseconds so the front edges of everything are really really important this is this is known as the transient if you like the beginning of the sound. And if, if you were to remove the transient from a violin and a guitar and just played the envelope rather than the beginning, it's not easy to tell the difference between those two instruments. So you need the beginning to tell you what it is. And then if you think about intelligibility with speech, it's in the consonants, it's in the it's in the T's and the the k. And, and they're all the edges. They're things that give, give stuff edges. If I start mumbling, not talking very clear, it's, it's the consonants that go first. So transient's really, really important. And uh, speakers need to be fast. So I, haven't, I don't go too technical. Because in the end, it is about music, which is about feelings. And to me, it's... It's a way to find out more about yourself 
And personally, I like old school house from from the 80s to the 90s when there was a very positive feeling. It was very happy. There was some vocals. Um, there were key changes. Uh, there was some melody. <laughs> and, you know, the thing that gets me most, I, I reckon, is the disjointed rhythms. You know, and um, I have said to people, well, look, if my heart was to behave like this rhythm, then I would be in hospital. Um, there are certain things that don't change, thank God, for eons. You know, one and breathing and thinking and your heart beating is one of them. So, you know, that's pretty old, but don't mean to say it's wrong. The thing, the thing we tend to do, like what I see with the digital thing is that all the good stuff that was understood and learned during the analog period of audio has been replaced to quite a large extent by the way digital um, behaves. And back in the 60s, a guy called Marshall McLuhan said the medium is the message. And now we're in the digital age, audio has shifted according to the message of that medium, which is that it's actually very fussy, it can be very wrong, and a lot of people have got very used to it. The point I'm making is the digital thing could have taken what was begun with analog further. And I'm, I'm here talking to you guys because it's of great concern to me that we, rather than going forward and building on what we understood, we've just swapped one kind of imperfection for another. It actually has not gone forward at this point. But why did it go wrong, in your opinion, then, if the possibilities were all there? <laughs> How deep do you want to go? <laughs> How much time we got? Just take the Russian Revolution, for instance, <laughs> which began with um, some really apparently good ideals, you know, for the people. And it didn't take long for it to turn... So, so an MP3 is like Stalin to um, I'm just saying that in the default mode of human endeavor is for it to go around in circles. And, and when you're on the other side of a circle, you're actually going in the opposite direction that you started with. And, you know, the, so going from the revolution to Stalin is from, from communism to fascism is a glaring example. And it, it, it's just... It's kind of human behavior because we all assume somebody else knows better than we do or there's somebody else taking care of it. It's not necessarily true. And it, as far as I'm concerned, audio is wide open. It's not been done. Um, it needs to get better. It's a very uplifting and deep subject. And I guess that's why you're all involved with it. But the musical side is, well... I mean, music in itself is an amazing thing that we have. Um, I, I can explain why we have such good audio perception and how it helps our survival. But why, we, why we've come up with music and we've got a scale that sounds in or out of tune is a fascinating question, really, and I'm not saying I know the answer. And, and you still haven't lost the hope for the turning point, then, in the digital age? You think it can still be turned into an advantage for audio? Well... I think I think the fact that function one exists with such a strength 
uh, despite the fact that we do we do unfashionable line array. I mean, we do we we're un, we don't do line arrays, so we're not in with the fashion. But there's enough people who get our audio quality to 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 make us successful. And the stu the really silly thing is that it's every so what happens then is this. I mean, this is this is the way the world works. Um, if we're quite popular and good in clubs, people start putting this idea around that we're no good for live. Because they will only use a line array in live, we, and we don't have one, that makes it quite hard. But people mark it against us by saying it's no good for live. Well, I can honestly tell you that a good loudspeaker, you can put any kind of music through it and you can appreciate it. So to say that one sound system is good for one kind of music and another is good for another kind of music is displaying great ignorance, frankly, so, about, about the subject. So the pigeonholing that goes on with musical styles doesn't apply to loudspeakers? No, only in as much as certain things, like with dance music, if a system's got good bass, then, then you could maybe consider it all right for dance music, even if the mid-range is pretty, pretty shoddy and the hot highs are nasty. But if you, if you want to do speech and the human voice, and here's another thing that's come into me ahead at this point, is the thing to evaluate a system on is a good vocal track. I do listen to dance music, electronic music on a system, but that's the last thing I do. The first thing I do is listen to a male or a female. In fact, I got both. I got tracks that I know, and I just put them on because the human voice is what we actually listen to most of the time. There are there are, there are what nearly seven billion human voices on the planet, and every one is different, and everybody can recognize their friend's voice, or even if you've only met somebody a couple of times. We're really tuned into voices, so if you get to know a good a good, well-recorded vocal track, and you put it on your speakers, it's going to tell you an awful lot straight away. You know, a typical thing would be the compression drivers are very forward and they, they give you three to 5K much too strongly. This is where, where all the cut in, in, in the sound is, actually where the, the, the edges of the transient are most, most noticeable. But if you haven't got the stuff below 2k if you haven't got the wooden frequencies you're missing something and a lot of production now is done like like this it's always been present um and i think it's something to do with uh are you are you guys aware of the fletcher munson curve of human frequency sensitivity it's actually not a linear curve so our sensitivity to various frequencies is quite different and the peak of it is at four kilohertz interestingly enough um and bass is actually quite quite low so if you look it up it's nothing it's certainly not straight it's kind of all over the place but the most sensitive region is 4k which is probably where most of the intelligibility in in when you're listening to somebody is is coming from that's around 4k is where all the t's and the and the s's are going to be so If you've got like a vocal and a guitar, which have a kind of similar frequency range, and you try to put them 
both into the two to five k area, then they're going they're they're going to be in a conflict. Actually, a guitar can have some really really lovely frequencies low down, you know, four five hundred. So to get a nice mix, you don't cram it all into the place where we naturally pay most attention. You you layer it. You put different things in different parts of the spectrum, and that that way you maintain separation and therefore more information. Okay, then, please give it up for Tony Andrews. Hey, this is Jordan Rothline again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a minute to tell you a little bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Finally, there's a whole world of other great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. <laughs>